Good morning. All right. The second lesson is from Matthew 22, verses 15 to 22. Then the Pharisees went and plotted to entrap him in what he said. So they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are sincere and teach the way of God in accordance with truth and show deference to no one, for you do not regard people with partiality. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why are you putting me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin used for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. Then he said to them, Whose head is this and whose title? They answered, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Give therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard this, they were amazed, and they left him and went away. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Will you pray with me? God, thank you for this text. We submit ourselves to you and ask that we may hear the gospel again this morning. Amen. Good morning. Uh, it's an honor to be here with you. My name is Lee, if I haven't met you yet. So ask someone, what did Jesus mean when he said, give to Caesar what is Caesar's? And you'll perhaps immediately discover where their political loyalties lie. How we interpret this parable may say more about us than it does about Jesus. Let's attempt to set our biases aside and taking a line from one of Pastor Bob's regular prayers, let's ask God to give us eyes to see the world the way that God does. With this simple but powerful prayer guiding us as we consider this strange encounter, I want to propose two points for us this morning. The first is that Jesus upends our categories and assumptions. Jesus upends our categories, our binaries, our assumptions. And number two, Jesus calls us to live our whole lives, every inch of it, in wholehearted love and devotion to God. So we're in Matthew 22, and two key things have already taken, taken place. Jesus has officially arrived in Jerusalem, the hotbed of political and religious power, and the dial has been turned up. Previously, he had been able to move about much more freely in the north in Galilee, visiting towns and villages and synagogues, escaping to remote places. Now he has returned to Jerusalem as its king, but on a donkey. In this dense, bustling city of vying powers and competing interests, we are already learning that this king is unlike any other. His triumph is manifested in surrender, his victory in defeat. Could we pause again briefly right now and pray again for the Middle East right now as we are there with them this morning in our text? God, we hold this region of the world before you 
and the voices of those suffering in Israel-Palestine cry out. Rescue us and forgive us, O God. Amen. The second thing to note in our text is that Jesus has just cleaned house in the temple the chapter before. That was the most holy place of worship for the Jewish people. And he's seeking to purify and liberate God's house of worship that has been turned into a space of commerce and a money-making charade. And the religious elites are furious. So Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem and the cleansing of the temple is startling everyone, including us, reminding us again what it means to be human, disrupting the usual numbing scripts in our mind about what power and what worship looks like. And this is too radical for the religious and political elite. And so some of the Pharisees seeking to preserve their religious power and the Herodians seeking to preserve the state systems and structures that make their lives comfortable seek to silence Jesus with their disingenuous questions. Trying to trap him, they ask, tell us, Jesus, is it lawful to pay taxes to the emperor or not? Paying taxes to Rome is one of the hot-button issues of the day, and they're asking Jesus where God stands. Maybe you'll remember that Roman census that was taken in the birth narrative, uh, in the birth narrative about Jesus. Well, that was in order to establish a tax base among the Judean people. Early in the first century, when Jesus was a boy, Revolters, led by a man named Judas, refused to pay the tax. They sought to throw off the burden imposed on them by their Roman occupiers, and as a result, they were crucified as a public display of warning to any who might consider to refuse to pay that tax. For many in Judea, these revolters were seen as heroes, And so a couple decades later, the Jewish people are still languishing under this tax, and Jesus is asked to weigh in. Respond with a yes, pay the tax, and lose the support of the Jewish people, crying out against this injustice. After all, wasn't Jesus claiming to be king, to liberate them? And if he says, no, don't pay the tax, then he is guilty of treason and the Jewish elite would be all too happy to report him to the Roman authorities. And he can end up on a cross just like Judas and the other revolutionaries before him. Well, we know that Jesus does end up on a cross and in just a few days after this encounter, but he's determined to do so on his own terms. So let's pay attention to how he handles this situation. Rather than fall into one of the two traps laid for them, he asks for a coin. He asks for the tax coin. This in itself is notable because it suggests that he himself was not carrying one of these coins, these mini idols, on his person. For the head of Tiberius Caesar, the Roman emperor, is etched onto that coin, and the words, Son of God, are carved into it. 
You can Google one of these coins today, and they're found in archaeological digs. And Jesus' questioners supply that coinage to Jesus, and Jesus turns the question back on them, saying, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. As we so often see with Jesus, he's refusing their categories, their binaries, and their assumptions. With his somewhat cryptic answer, he restructures the paradigm, not to avoid the politics of the situation or to outwit his opposition, but to say something true and something radical about God's kingdom. So let's look a little more closely at how he threads this needle and try to understand what he wants his questioners to hear with his response and perhaps what we can hear from him this morning. When he asks for the coin, he says, whose head is on this coin? Or the exact translation would be whose icon or whose image? Now, when you hear the word icon, you might think of iconography, the the art of using images to tell or represent something. This is the same word that the Old Testament Greek translation uses in the first chapter of Genesis when God says, let us make humankind according to our image. Let us make humankind according to our icon. The coin, of course, bears the image or the icon of Caesar, ruler of the Roman Empire. That's fine. But many commentators believe that implicit in Jesus' question, by using the word icon, like a wise rabbi, Jesus is reminding his audience, recalling for them the cherished and beloved truth that humans bear the image of God. There isn't anything in this whole creation that doesn't have the imprint of God on it. And humans, every human, not just the emperor, not just the ruler or king, every human holds the image of God. So sure, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, but whatever we give the emperor can and must be an expression of our deeper allegiance to God, for we are God's handiwork, fashioned after God's image. They may pay the infamous poll tax, but they do not belong to the emperor. Humankind is marked, stamped, and claimed by God. This is Jesus reframing the categories in a way that feels to me like the biggest bear hug you can imagine, where he envelops the whole earth, all of creation, and calls it mine, beloved. Although sometimes this text has been interpreted as a way to justify the separation between church and state, I think, and other wise theologians and New Testament scholars also think, that instead, Jesus is reframing the categories. By using this line of questioning, he doesn't allow us to set up two kingdoms, one for society and one for God, He overturns that dichotomy. We cannot serve two lords. He will not allow us to carve out space for God's kingdom out of the secular empire that we live in. The problem is not how to rightly section off our allegiance in the proper proportion. 
The problem for Christians is how to justify allegiance to the empire while remaining faithful and ultimately allegiant to God and God alone. Whatever we give the emperor can and must be an expression of our deeper allegiance to God. Our second point this morning, that Jesus calls us to live our whole lives, every inch of it, in wholehearted love and devotion to God. I was working on part of the draft of this homily while I was on an airplane, and I got the window seat, which I always prefer. Dan got stuck in the middle, um, and we took off around 6 a.m., and I pulled out my laptop to work, and I later looked out my window and saw an entirely new horizon. It was a gorgeous, quietly glowing horizon above a softly textured blanket of clouds that our aircraft was treading upon. The view felt transcendent and full of peace, a welcome calm as I thought about all the war, turmoil, and conflict below. In many ways, Jesus is rising above the chaos in our text this morning and offering us a new way of living. He's transcending the false narratives, the false categories, and establishing a new horizon, a new kingdom. He invites us to come and see the world the way that God sees it, to follow him, to remember again that the whole earth, earth is God's, and we bear this God's image. But this hope Jesus holds out is not a suspended, disembodied existence or an escape chute into the clouds. Jesus is still rooted to the ground. He is human, after all. And this is the wonder of the incarnation. As a human, he knows the issues, he knows that they're real, and he knows that they matter. Then and now, he knows the tension that the very act of living places on us every day as we try to discern what it means to live these image-bearing lives and wholehearted allegiance to God's kingdom. How do we do this? Because every inch of us belongs to God, how do we go about our lives where everything we do is a reflection of our allegiance to him? This is a question the church has been wrestling with for centuries, and I want us to engage with the good contributions of theologian Jurgen Moltmann as we consider how the church is to engage with society and the world. Moltmann is nearing 100 years old. He is a revered, beloved German theologian with a fascinating life story, having come of age when Nazism was on the rise in Germany and his story of breaking out of that prison and ideology is powerful. His groundbreaking book that came out in the 60s called Theology of Hope helps us think about how to bring the realities of this new horizon, this new kingdom to our flesh and blood lives. In it, he offers some challenges to Christians and to, to the church. He asks us to consider how we have isolated ourselves and detached ourselves from society, seeing the church at times not as a platform to engage the world 
and tell the story of this cross-bearing, enemy-loving God, but rather as a place to meet our own private spiritual needs. We also, he says, meet at church to build a community, which is a wonderful gift. We are the people of God, but sometimes that community can circle its wagons and doesn't strive for community and engagement within our neighborhoods in the public square. For Moltmann, he reads Matthew's text and says, no, the church is called to be so much more than a quiet, pietistic space where we isolate ourselves from the world. We are in fact called to stand at that intersection of religion and politics, just as Jesus did, and as he'll continue to do this Passion Week. We are to be a church that lives, as Moltmann says, within the horizon of expectation of the coming kingdom of God, claiming God's image and icon on every human person. We engage because Jesus did. Jesus, the human God, the worker of our redemption and salvation, by his incarnation, by his cross, by his resurrection, and by his promised return, gives us the grace and power to give our lives back to God. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, but to God what is God's. In a lot of ways, Moltmann summed it up super succinctly when he said, I reject the pietistic tract and the secular tract. For the pietistic Christians do not protest, and the secular Christians don't pray. So we seek to live in Caesar's world, and by God's grace, by God's imprint on our lives, we counter Caesar's ethics that dehumanize. This will cause us to live radically, even subversively at times. If we walk in the rhythms and narratives that Christ set for us, that narrative will always speak truth to power. For some of us, this will play out in how we engage with the ethics of our craft, our trade, the ways that we make money, with how we extend dignity to our neighbors and the very people, the very basic needs that people have, people whose lives have become collateral damage and messy and complicated politics. For some of us, it's in how we care for our family, how we raise our kids to see the world through new categories, categories not of utility and prosperity, but of dignity and self-giving love. For some of us, it's in how we care for and honor aging parents, or who we even call our family, extending that term to those in our lives who need a family, not a benefactor, but a family someone they can count on when the going gets tough. This will affect our purchasing decisions, how we consume, where we consume. This will extend to how we show up for school every day. Middle schoolers and high schoolers, your whole lives, every part of you is loved and claimed and known by God. So everything you do with your mind, with your bodies, with your interests, your questions, your passions, do it excellently, giving it back to God, for it belongs to God in the first place. There are times Christians will be called to cooperate with civil authority 
and times we will be called to resist. There are many we can look to in the cloud of witnesses as we discern God's call on our lives in the life of the church, from the likes of the Hebrew midwives Shipra and Pua, who disobeyed Pharaoh, the Caesar of their time, and rescued little babies condemned to die, to William Tyndale, who translated the Bible into English, but was strangled and burned at the stake because the religious elite didn't want the Bible in the hands of the common folk, to Archbishop Romero, who pled the cause of the poor in his country of El Salvador and decried the state-sanctioned military violence against his people. He was also martyred. Or what about Fred Rogers, Mr. Rogers, a Presbyterian minister, a man committed to kindness and dignity who subversively and wonderfully childlike ways broke down barriers on his show, elevating all image bearers to a status of honor and dignity and communicating the values of God's kingdom through a new technology. I hope some of you might join me at my home on November 4. Check the, the weekly email to discuss the novel, These Small Things, an account of one man who is confronted with the decision of living according to Caesar's dehumanizing ethics and values and systems or God's. We have a cloud of witnesses to spur us on to discern how we are to give to God what that which belongs to God. So rather than approach this text and ask ourselves, what is the bare minimum that I owe to God and to society? What do I have to do to hold up my end of the bargain? What do I owe to God and what do I owe to the state? We have to ask different questions. Allow Jesus to take our categories, mush them up, and remind us of whose image we bear. We have to, in the words of my new favorite TV show, The Bear, change the chemistry. The main character in the show, a troubled, grieving, brilliant chef, is trying to right-side a Chicago family restaurant. He is dealing with his own demons at his wit's end, at a breaking point, winds up at an addict's meeting, and is told, you have to change the chemistry. Don't just try to get by, tweak this, check that box. Make sure this part of your life doesn't touch that part of your life. We have to change the entire chemistry if we want to live true and flourishing, Jesus-following lives. So let's spur one another on to live as Jesus followers and grafted into the chemistry of his love, the chemistry of Jesus, the true vine, the shepherd who chases after the one lost, lost lamb, with our chemistries changed, we are people of hope, people who look to the future knowing we have the hope of Christ and we hold out this hope for the world. We are becoming the fruit of this vine, the branches of this ever-growing and widening tree. Each branch looks different and lives out their image-bearing in unique and different ways, but we are one people engrafted to one Messiah, and we pray by God's grace that this ever-widening tree of God would flourish, would expand with such beauty and such truth and such wonder 
that those outside the faith are drawn to rest under its shade. Will you pray with me? God, we offer our lives to you. Teach us and give us the imaginations to live according to your ways. In the name of our Savior and Redeemer, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Will you please stand and join us in singing as we respond together? Um, How can I keep from singing? This is one of the hymns that has also been around grace for a long time, brought in by James Falzone 20, 25 years ago. Um, Let's sing together. (laughs) 